welcome to another episode of the Coastline Covenant Podcast. I hope you are ready for a long conversation. Sean Hurley, Andrew Ferris, and myself discussed the article that Sean referenced several times in his sermon this past Sunday. We've linked it on our social media, and we hope that you have had the opportunity to read it because it will be very helpful as you listen to this discussion that is extremely long, so you get a prize if you finish it all. Andrew, Sean, and I talk about the reasons that we're divided, what's worth dividing over, and just some practical tips about what it means to be in church with people who are different than you. And this podcast is for anybody who has experienced that, who has been at church and looked across the aisle or met someone and they're believing that there's no reason that that person should be here. This is a a podcast for you to really reflect and really think about what it is church is for and why we're all there and what's the importance of being there. So this is a really good conversation and I anticipate having a lot of feedback from people. So please connect with us. Please email me or email Sean or find us at service and talk to us about what you think. But until then, we will see you next week and every single week after that. Welcome to another episode of the Coastline Covenant Podcast. This is um, something that we had talked about. Not, you know, it was an extended conversation because this is a fairly new thing for us, this article. But Sean had referenced this article in his sermon. And we had a lot of people reach out and say, I want to read the article. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when a lot of us read something, it feels really good to have a conversation about it and respond to it. And so we have posted the article. If you haven't read it, go ahead and pause this and read the article. It's not very long. It's like nine pages, but Michael Graham, Michael Graham wrote it. Yeah. On his, uh, on a blog called mere orthodoxy. And, uh, the article is called the six fractures of evangelical Christianity. Um, and, and Sean referenced it in his sermon, which, uh, I think I speak for everybody at coastline when I say it was really good. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think we could do a whole podcast based on that sermon. It was really good. But a lot of people have reached out and wanted to kind of digest and discuss the things mentioned in this article. So that's what we're doing. So I'm here with Sean and with uh, Theo Nerd number one, Andrew Ferris. Hi. (laughs) I didn't know what to say to that. Yeah, just hi works for me. Uh, And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to discuss the article and kind of the big points of it and just kind of reflect on it, especially in our context at Coastline. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Sean, how did you first come across this article? Yeah, so Garrick had sent it to the Coastline team um, originally, maybe about a week before that sermon was given. And I remember I read it and I I felt like it... um, it describes so perfectly what I was seeing um, in churches around us, in churches happening throughout the country. It so perfectly described my experience. And I remember it It actually, it, this doesn't happen often, right? But it's like you read something and it shakes you up and you have to go for a walk and process it. Yeah. Like that's where I was at with it. And I instantly sent it to Andrew and said, hey, you, you've got to read this as well. And Andrew, you had the same response. I think you sent me probably that night, you sent me 10, 15 texts about it just processing it because it was so close to what you'd seen too yeah and i know my, my other reaction was oh let's get together and talk about this like <laughs> it was the kind of thing where it was like yeah it was it seemed pretty clearly important you know yeah and like, like this this uh gentleman had had um mm-hmm. had uh highlighted identified something significant that right. people were feeling but then sort of gave words and sort of carefulness and precision to a thing that a lot of people were feeling um, yeah, that was, that was definitely my experience of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael Graham is the author, like we'd mentioned, um, dude is super accessible. I tweeted at him and we had a little conversation and I was just able to express how helpful the article was for our church context. And he was, 
uh, he was really responsive and he was like specifically tell me what was so important to you about it. And so if you want to reach out to Michael Graham with your gripes and concerns, I think, I think he would welcome it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not like saying, you know, he's going to be your best friend, but That's what people are on Twitter is to yeah. interact with people. And he's yeah. not, doesn't have a ton of followers. So he, uh, he really is a, he was just a good, good conversation. And it's having a viral moment kind of within yeah. churches and within the Christian sphere right now. It's, um, it's being retweeted and being talked about quite a de- quite a yeah. bit. So that's, um, I think that's the more even telling thing that he has tapped into something that is being felt is, um, this isn't just your experience, my experience. Something that we're seeing in friendships and in families, we're seeing it throughout the country. Yeah, yeah. So let's summarize the article for maybe someone who didn't read it or didn't quite wrap their heads around it. It was maybe too dense, too academic. Sure. Let's let's summarize the article. What was its main point? What what was the article saying? Yeah, it's that there are a host of topics that are hitting the societal kind of consciousness right now, which are dividing churches into different groups. Um, These would tend to be issues focused on race or on uh, maybe some, um, the history of the country. He referenced Colin Kaepernick or Breonna Taylor or Confederate monuments, um, these kinds of issues. Um, and where before we had been able to maintain relationships through the tensions of these conversations, that we are now finding that we are unable to maintain those relationships and that churches are uh, finding themselves with four different kinds of Christians of how you respond to these societal issues and churches are separating into different kinds of churches specializing reaching these kinds of people uh, as a result of what's happening. And so he's describing a fracture of of Christians into a wider fraction of churches um, as a result of how these things are hitting people. And these things being your Colin Kaepernick's, your Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Confederate monuments, COVID vaccines. Everything that you can't bring up at the dinner table, those things, um, before we might have been able to laugh through them or we might be able to ignore them and maintain a relationship, but they've reached the place of volatility where they are now... uh, no, we're no longer able to maintain relationships when we think differently about these things. One one thing I do want to say that I, as a point of clarification, is that I don't think he's so much advocating that churches ought to pers- go after some of these subgroups. I, what his language is um, that you'll end up with three kinds of churches, right? And then people will self sort into them. Yes. And so it's not so much that he's saying like almost like the old sort of strategy of like go pursue a certain demographic and build around that as a growth model mm-hmm. or a strategy, which is sort of the way people used to talk about this sort of thing. Maybe I might have missed it if he said that. Um, but it's more that like churches, many churches, most churches won't actually be able to avoid this. Right. That as they as leaders take positions on things, then it will sort of self sort the churches. As uh, and that and that people will go, you know, they'll be oh my my leader and you and I, you're watching this with stories happen all over mm-hmm. the place right now where it's like oh people are starting to leave historic churches mm-hmm. and they're like I can't be there anymore and go to another one because of issues precisely like this. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not that it's like go str- strategically reach those people. It's that people are going to self sort into them, mm-hmm. which is a slight it's a slight difference because I think it's a I do think it's important to say the point isn't. The, at least the upshot of the article is is not so much saying use this to grow your church. You know, right, it, it's, right. it's much more I think <laughs> uh, sad than that. Almost, yeah. It's almost a foregone conclusion that like this is this is where we're at, and it's not going to be easy to maintain a church with multiple different groups of people. My question: When do we think this happened? 
Sean, you said like you used to be able to laugh these things off. When yeah. did the laughing stop and the division start? Yeah, that's such a good question. And um, and this won't be uh, the totality of the answer. Um, I heard somebody say once that when you read the book of Genesis, when you hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you talk about three generations of a family who largely have the same sort of experience. They live in the same sort of world. You know, the world doesn't change too much between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said, but if you looked into our world today and took three generations, let's say your grandparents, your parents, mm. and yourself, you live in drastically and dramatically different worlds. And so what is happening is that culture is changing faster than ever before. And so the generational gaps uh, are bigger. And so we find less and less resonance from the world that our parents lived in and our grandparents lived in than we do. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look specifically at the last 10 to 15 years, you see the speed of change happening faster, which you know, pro- largely probably the internet, but in terms of globalization, um, views on um, sexuality, views on gender, those things are changing so fast. And I think as a result, people are feeling uh, more and more disoriented. Mm-hmm. Um, they less and less recognize their world that they lived in. It's not just that they no longer don't understand their parents' world, their own world, they look at it and believe that it's changing too fast, and they believe that it's changing a lot of ways for the worse. I think this is on both sides. I think everybody believes that the world is changing for the worst right now, and with that comes fear, and I think a desire to protect and to return back to what it was. And you can define yourself what it was, you know? Yeah. It could be, that could be, uh, I'll just use presidents, the Obama era for some, or the Reagan era for others, or the 1950s for others. There's a desire, I think, for everybody to return due to a deep dissatisfaction with the present. Wow, that's insightful. Um, what are some of the camps? So he, he brings up actually six categories of people, but you only mentioned four in your sermon. Yeah, I, I thought there was four that were easy. The other two, I thought, uh, are unlikely to be necessarily in churches. Right. Which and he says as well. Yeah. He, you know, he says there's four of them that end up sticking in church, basically. Yeah. And so the, the, just really quickly, the categories are the neo-fundamentalist evangelical, which is someone who has some overlap with Christian nationalism, but they do so with more theological vocabulary. They have deep worries about the church's drift towards liberalism in the way that secular ideologies are finding their home in the church. Um, and he refers to these as like ones. So if we in the podcast say, you're one church, this is kind of the ones. The far right of the, the spectrum. The far right of the spectrum. And then we kind of move more into mainstream. I think, I think while avoiding the farthest right. So I think he's trying to say, sure. that's why he clarifies more theological vocabulary and rationalities. I think he's eliminating, you know, white supremacist overt churches, right? right? You know, like sort of like something right. like that, right? Right. Good point. Right. Good point. Yeah. Uh, and then we move towards mainstream evangelical, which um, emphasis on fulfilling the Great Commission, concerned about secular rights influence on Christianity, but far more concerned by the secular left's influence, uncomfortable with the rhetoric Trump and other conservatives use. So we're moving away from that, like, not extreme right, but far right, kind of a little bit more mainstream. Then there's neo-evangelical or global evangelicals. They are evangelicals doctrinally, but no longer use the term evangelical in some circumstances in the American context. They're concerned with conservative Christianity's acceptance of Trump and failure to engage on the topics of race and sexuality. And then there are the post-evangelicals, people who have fully left evangelicalism from a self-identification standpoint, and they reject the label. Now, Sean, in your sermon, um, at least at the 6 p.m., you had said you wish you could have said more about that, but you didn't. What, what did you want to say about that that you didn't get to? Yeah, well, part of it was just the physical representation on the slide, right? Like some of them got like three or four stanzas and that one got one. Right. And so I thought 
gosh, I did not spend enough time teasing that out. Um, you, can, you only can speak kind of um, with general terms, right? But I think this would tend to be younger believers have a heart for social justice, um, are very concerned with um, what the church is choosing to be loud and silent about. That's, um, a, good, that's a really good way of putting that. Yeah, that there's... Con- that they believe that the church needs to return back to biblical calls for justice, for care for uh, sojourners and foreigners, and um, as a result of not seeing it, most specifically, there is a uh, begin to be a um, a deconstruction of their faith. Yes, and Hunter, you could probably, I mean, I know you threw it to me. I would almost throw it back to you to describe the deconstruction that's happening in in specifically younger generation of believers as they find less and less connection to the things that maybe their parents or older generations have cared about. Yeah. What I'm finding a lot in circles that um, I interact with uh, in, in kind of this like for post evangelical sphere is just the lack of trust in religious experts. Uh, that's kind that's of the, interesting. the biggest red flag is if you are positing yourself as the pastor, theologian, teacher, you are automatically someone to not be trusted. Um, and that's because what you said, you know, you were loud about other things, but very silent about other things. And so your, um, you know, your credibility as a leader is, is questionable. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of people in my generation, I have a lot of friends who are experiencing this right now who, oh, you work at a church. How could you work at a church? Mm-hmm. How is that something that you could do? How could you be the expert? You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be trying to be that person. So we see that a lot. I, I see that a lot. There's a lot of resources out there for people who are struggling with that. Yeah. Deconstruction is probably a whole podcast in and of itself. Yeah. and As it's becoming a word that we're becoming a little more familiar with. And there's it's a matter of degrees there, too. I right. Think. And someone, I'm, I don't think either of us are fully deconstructing our faith, but how often do you go through journeys where you just learn something in a new way? That's, I mean, mm-hmm. I think you could categorize that as deconstruction, but there's a foundation there and, and you're, you're going towards construction. So I don't actually think that we are the right people to talk about deconstruction because we're just not. Yeah. We're not deconstructing, you know, and so that's kind of. It's maybe another podcast with some other guests or something. Maybe we could call, we can call like uh, Josh Harris or something. Yeah, yeah, there's a podcast already with him exploring. Yeah, so, you know, we talked about each type uh, briefly. And so I'm wondering, Sean and Andrew, as people who've been in church for, for a while and led churches, what are some of the essentials of each of these pieces, each of these camps, one, two, three, and four, that you would say are good? Like, as someone who's listening right now might be like, well, I'm totally a two, or I'm totally a three, or I'm totally a one or a four. What, what's an essential part of that, that group that you want to affirm and be like, hey, it's good, and, and that part of you is actually needed in the community? So uh, let me say something broadly about this question, which is that I actually think it's, it's completely the right place to start about this, and that a lot of the, uh, the trouble here is that uh, people... <laughs> Um, in many cases, have no ability to ask that question. Right. They only see other an enemy in somebody who is, um, who who has some different, who has emotional intensity around different things, and may even disagree or, um, around some different things. So, um, I I really think that at the baseline here, one of the things that Christians need to be good at is if we believe. Um, here, I'll play the nerd role for a second. We, sometimes we talk about the noetic effects of the fall. And what the noetic effects of the fall is, it means that, um, it means that of, of the many things that sin does to us, um, of the many negative effects, one of them is that sin makes us, um, makes our knowledge incomplete and mm-hmm. makes us potentially wrong about things, essentially. Um, so that our knowledge is less complete than it would be sort of in a non-fallen world. 
Um, and I think that's a really helpful point. So if we say baseline, any one of us anywhere could be could be wrong about things that we believe and hold strongly. And that it's actually, and the hard thing, of course, is like, I can say very clearly, uh, I'm sure that I'm wrong about stuff. The problem is that I don't know what I'm wrong about. Right. And so, um, and so I think coming into a conversation like this, um, being slow to speak, quick to listen. And what I mean by a conversation like this is, let's say I'm in camp one and Hunter, you're in camp two and Sean, you're in camp three. We're not, we're not probably, but I just mean, assuming we're three friends sitting and talking, right? My approach to the conversation, especially with large and complex cultural issues affecting so many things, I can get a long way by just assuming it's possible that I'm wrong about some stuff, including about even things that um, can seem really clear, like like things where you feel like you have really strong biblical evidence or something. Um, I could I could be wrong. The other person I'm talking to is probably not an idiot. Mm -hmm. You know, they're probably not just like totally stupid. And they're probably also not a moral monster, right? They're probably trying their best to do good in most cases. If now, if it's if the person is plainly um, incompetent, or if they are um, plainly mean, or sort of starting from a different base, then you have a bad faith conversation partner, and you should probably recognize that maybe that's not a person with whom you want to have the conversation. But assuming, assuming that most of these people in camps one, two, three, and four, as he lays it out, are there. There's, you can get a long, long way by thinking, I might be wrong. What does this person have to add to the conversation who is probably means well, is probably trying hard to think about things? Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I just think it's a great question, Hunter. I think it's, it's important to do that in these conversations and just kind of push the brakes a little bit before you right. say, that idiot, you know, totally. um, which is where many of us go a lot of times because we feel emotional intensity about these things. And I think that in these conversations and Sean, I'll keep going back to your sermon because again, it was so good, but it was such a helpful way to contextualize his article. You talked about when you find someone that you don't agree with, like asking them more, like, Hey, help me understand this. Let me see this from your perspective. And I just think that's just intellectual humility um, to just say like, I don't know. And I may, I might not know. And your experience might be different than mine. And it has led you to different conclusions and, and to, yeah. to lead with, as Ted Lasso would say, curiosity, yeah. right. Instead of, or I guess he quotes someone in that, but you know, leading with curiosity rather than just assumptions like that. I think that's one of the most Christ-like things we can do. And I think that's one of the things that's been lost. Like as you're talking, Andrew, I was thinking of second Corinthians six, where it's talking about being unequally yoked which is typically a passage that we use about marriage, but it's, it's about probably partnership with the world in any level. It says, you know, what, uh, how can light have any fellowship with the darkness, right? Um, now, when we, we hear that, um, I think when we come across somebody that we disagree now, we, we almost default to that, right? That I can't have any fellowship with somebody that I disagree with. And so we exit those kinds of relationships or we exit that kind of conversation or that kind of friendship over time if we find that we disagree about those sorts of things. And when Paul talks about not having, how can the light have any fellowship with darkness, he's talking about the world, right? About like, make sure that you live differently than the world. But inside of the family of faith, I mean, he comes back to again and again and again about living from a place of unity and of common belief and of love one another. Um, you know, uh, especially when you get into Romans 14 and Romans 15, there's a call towards uh, greater unity about not dividing over small things. There's warnings to people who are divisive who are dividing the church because, and I've said this before, Paul believes in the unity of the church so much that he almost says that the unity of, universe, the, <laughs> the unity of the church is the most important thing. He doesn't go all the way there because what you believe really matters. But he says, ultimately, 
unity is so important to him and to the church. So Theo Nerd, respond to that. He almost says unity of the church is the most important thing. What would you say? Well, I would, I mean, I, what I would, I, it makes me think of Ephesians 2, I think it is, where, um, where, where Paul says the unity of the church is a witness to demonic powers of the power of the gospel, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it, it is, could not be in more cosmic terms that he talks about mm-hmm. this. Uh, and, and so, like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think this is a huge, huge issue. And um, I think the gap between the, uh, the, the delta, between the prevalence of this issue in the New Testament of love for one another and church unity relative to its prevalence in our church practice and my experience in churches, and I can only speak for the churches I've been to, uh, is pretty massive. I, I think we, we don't build ministry strategy very well and church thinking very well around how are we going to be more united and love each other more, mm-hmm. which is not a question that comes up in my experience in those kinds of rooms. We talk about all kinds of other things, how we're going to reach people and all that. And God, there's a million things and like, I'm not trying to be critical. I just mean, I've just, this is just purely from my reading of, of, of scripture and things that are jumping out for me. I mean, you think about, think about the language of Ephesians four, mm-hmm. be eager to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, um, being patient with each other, showing tolerance for one another in love. The, the language, the, the command is to be eager for it. Go above and beyond. Pursue it earnestly. Um, I think I mean, that is a challenging and important word in a conversation like this, that, that every one of us as individuals has a call to eagerly pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I was thinking about this is jumping a little bit ahead, I think, but um, you could go on and on. I was thinking about what, I, I come back to this verse all the time. Jesus says to the disciples, only to the 11, Judas is gone when he says this. I think it's in John 13, right after, um, right after Judas leaves. Jesus says, um, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And people talk about that as a reference to love in general a lot, but I, I think you can miss something there, which is that what he's saying to the disciples is, you Christians, you disciples of Jesus, must love one another, specifically other Christians. Um, and as you do that, um, all people will know that you're my disciples. So, so part of Jesus's evangelistic strategy, his witness to the world, mm. is the unity of the church, and, and that people will love each other. And then, of course, goes right into John 17, the high priestly prayer, famous passage where he spends an entire chapter of the Bible praying that Christians will be unified. Mm-hmm. Um, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at this verse earlier. Um, in fact, I have it here. Listen to, just think, this is such a familiar passage, you can miss the import of it. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He, and again, he's talking to a church that is struggling to love one another. That's what, that's context of that passage. You could literally give away all of your stuff to important causes and give your body up to be burned for important causes. And Paul says it can be meaningless mm-hmm. because you don't love one another. But that is really strong. And, and I think is so crucial here. Um, so to say nothing of you can vote for the right president or you can right. whatever and have not love and be nothing. And so, so I think that, that in this, 
what you're getting at, Sean, is really right, which is that there's a massive... It's I think the way you framed it is right. He doesn't quite say it's the most important thing, but I mean, again, we just preached on the, sh- the Shema and the Greatest Commandment, where mm-hmm. Jesus says, all of the law hangs on these two commandments. The second one yeah. is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yeah. again, your neighbor in Leviticus 15 is talking about other Israelites or other Christians, as the case may be. He's, um, it's rooted in the language of family and the fact mm-hmm. that we're supposed to be family together. So um, to me, like it is the thing here is like we have to really, really, really give this center of our attention, especially when the, the moment we're in everywhere, everybody is seeing and telling us, do you see how fractured everybody is? Like we know it's a major cultural issue. Can I riff on that one more time, Hunter? Riff. You, th- just in a reminder, these first century churches and a lot of the times what they're struggling with is Jews and Gentiles um, coming together in these churches and they're trying to process what needs to be retained from Judaism and what could be released. And they're also dealing with massive amounts of baggage over what has happened over the course of the last centuries in their relationships that has pitted them against one another. Now they've come to Christ and they are now uh, both side by side worshiping Christ, but they're having a hard time figuring out how do we be united together even as we worship Christ. And the, it would have been so easy for them to say, let's have Jewish churches and Gentile churches, because it's just too hard. It is too hard for us to be united together. Uh, and yet, especially throughout all of Ephesians, Paul's message is that, no, 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 he is our peace who has made the two one. He comes back to it again and again, uh, that even though this is far more challenging for them than simply who you voted for or these things that are distant like Ka- Kaepernick or Confederate monuments, these are very important to them right now. His answer is no unity in the church moves through these areas and through that mutual love of Christ, extending that to one another. Uh, so, I mean, certainly, if if the call was to these churches was to be united, I don't know how we could ever see ourselves as having an opt-out of that unity. And so, I mean, we've danced around the question that I asked in the beginning, so thanks. Uh, <laughs> unity, unity in the church means affirming parts of each number, one, two, three, and four. There is something about you that means... If there's something about what you believe that makes you like crucial to the operation here. Mm-hmm. So what would you affirm? Someone listening right now who's a one, two, three, or four, and they're sitting here and they're saying, my pastors don't want me there. What would you say to them? How would you respond specifically to their worldview or, or their leanings? And how, how would you tell them that they matter? Uh, well, I mean, this is going to dance around it again, but I, I am so struck by... I think the concern I have, even with actually with that, so what you're, that's a good question, right? It's, it's good that we think through what is right about these, because this is part of what I was getting at earlier, which is that people aren't idiots. And so, right. um, so they're, they're, they're people in each of these camps are, are grabbing onto stuff. Um, but I do think that in the midst of that, that one of the things that Jesus is getting at in the great commandment um, is that theological adherence is not actually the most important thing. He's saying that to Pharisees, and that um, we can line up the things that we believe are essential um, to the faith, doctrine of the Trinity, deity of Christ, those things. So, you, I mean, if you deny these, you are not a Christian, right? Like, like we would say that those are those inner circle issues. Um, but Paul also said, but Jesus also seems to say that it, you can affirm those kinds of things, and that you can be a, a big problem because if you don't actually love Yahweh and mm-hmm. if you don't actually love your neighbors yourself, that it's a problem. So underneath all this, what I would say is the thing that all of them have to have right, f- to, to be right, is 
a true motivation, rootedness in um, love for Jesus as the true center of our faith and in, um, and in love for one another, that those are both really, really, really important. And so, so underneath all of them, no matter which one you are, it doesn't matter what else you affirm in those camps. If, if it's not motivated by that, it is wrong. It is, it is the, it, the, the theological belief, the political belief, it doesn't matter um, if, if you don't have that at the center, and that's what we've got to be pursuing. So um, that's another caveat, I guess. But um, no, I, actually, I just think it's, imp- I think it's really important to keep that straight because we want to go towards what is your position on these issues and what matters, but yeah. No, so. I actually think you're not dancing around it at all. I think that's actually a really good answer. Um, be, yeah, I think... The underlying thing is important. I guess what I'm getting at now is like how I'm like thinking about the way that our belief translates to action then. Like what would you say to someone who like just feels like they don't belong? Like they're like my I have these beliefs and I get that, you know, they're rooted in love for God or neighbor and I can justify that and, you know, Mm -hmm. rationalize that in my head. But like how I post on Facebook or like how I interact with my community. Like, I don't feel like I belong specifically at coastline. So what would you, Sean, as a pastor, what would you say to someone who, who is feeling that way? Well, I do think that you can be a healthy serving, um, loving person in leadership at coastline in any of these four numbers. Mm -hmm. I really want to affirm that. I think that you absolutely can. And I do think, uh, I'll, let me try to speak directly to the ones and the fours, the neo-fundamentalists and the post-evangelicals, right? Because they're on the far margin of this. Um, if you are a neo-fundamentalist, then um, what I think that you bring to the church is a strong commitment of truth and a wariness about the effects of sin mm-hmm. and how it can be like uh, a yeast that works through us and that um, you know bad company corrupts good character. If we stay too close to the world that is thinking this way, we might lose our own purity and holiness. So with that, there's something good, the call towards truth and belief, that is worthy and affirmable, right? And on the forward side, the, the neo-evangelical, the neo-evangelical um, I would say there is a, the, the heart is still the same. I see the sinfulness of the world, but their desire is to run towards and run into mm-hmm. and to love and embrace um, they have the same concern, but instead of withdrawing uh, for the sake of purity, they lean in for the sake of uh, cause. Uh, but with them needs to be a commitment to not lose the truths of the gospel in your love for people, that you would essentially love people so much that you would diminish the biblical truths um, and essentially accept all of sinfulness with it out of love. So I think those are the, the warning signs, but in there, the heart still, I think, is good. Um, so that would be the caution and the praise I think I'd have for the two margins. I, I think that's right. And I think almost everybody falls somewhere. I, I mean, another way to frame this one, two, three, and four is like right, middle, right, middle, left, left, you right. know, within evangelicalism, those four yeah. it's saying like sort of evangelical right to evangelical left and everything in between. Um, and, um, and so you can probably fit kind of the other two into what you just said, but I think that's totally right. Like it tends to be that people on the far right are very concerned about truth, are very concerned about the authority of Scripture, are very concerned about um, not wanting to back down on those things and, to, um, and recognizing that there, there's going to be times that you're at, you're at odds with culture and saying that's part of the deal with being, following Jesus, like it's the crucified Messiah. Um, and, and so uh, sometimes a little bit more... Um, a little more triumphalistic around culture in ways that I'm maybe less comfortable with, but the like, but basically there's going to be a, a, 
the culture is not always going to fit nicely with the, with the gospel, and they, they are holding on to some of that stuff in a way that I think is good. And I think on the left, it's it's motivated a lot of times by love and empathy, and like just really wanting to go towards, like you said, like people who are hurting, and they see that and that. And again, I think it's helpful to see somebody who's on a different side of this conversation that way, which is like, what's sort of the positive motivation there? It actually may have. It's not because maybe they're, you know stodgy and mean and whatever or maybe it's not because they're like a liberal snowflake or whatever right like it's like oh actually because they're somebody's motivated by love for somebody who they see jesus loving in the Mm -hmm. bible or maybe they're really motivated by like yeah but it's the bible and we have to hold the truth and like and you're a little bit loosey-goosey with that over there you know and um so i i i yeah i find myself in conversations with people all the time where i hear both of those things happening you know yeah and uh I think the church is meant to be filled with a diversity of opinions and thoughts and gifts and passions, right? I mean, that's where we get the first Corinthians passage on the body, you know, the body is composed of many parts. You know, who can say, can the eye say to the ear, I don't need you. No, Christ has created a diverse body to carry out the diverse mission. And when you begin to lop off parts of the body, so it actually fits into your one preferred um, look it is to the detriment of the church. It is to the detriment of the gospel. It's to the detriment of your own sanctification mm. because you simply will be, you will no longer be iron sharpening iron towards godliness and holiness. You just become an echo chamber. Um, and I think it, it leads you away from godliness, not towards it. Yeah. I do think on the other side, people, people, that sounds good in theory, but what, what people end up experiencing is what they see as, um, loveless um bibleness and uh bibleless love you know and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how people see each other in the conversation and so it's like yeah, that all sounds nice sean and andrew but like but like what do i do when this person is like compromising you know overtly yeah. or what do i do when this person is just being mean you know mm-hmm. or, or whatever you know and i think that is the challenge that when the rubber meets the road on this stuff it can be like well, yeah but that person actually has a morally inferior viewpoint and it's not just that they're. It's not just that I disagree with them about a secondary issue. It's that they are racists, or that they, you know, are um, denying the truth of Scripture, or something like that. You know, yeah. which is which takes it to a different level. It's not. It's not the same in that respect in terms of people's intensity around it, at least in the present moment, as somebody who disagrees with you about infant baptism. Yeah, you know? but that becomes so casually thrown about these days, uh, totally. right? That um, most of the time, the arguments are not about Scripture, deity of Christ, salvation by grace. The conversations are not about top tier issues. They're probably not even about second tier issues, right? They're talking about nuanced third tier preferences um, that are being elevated into the top tier so that ultimately every hill becomes one to die on. And if every hill is a hill to die on, then the church will essentially die. Right. Now, if we believe that, I believe ultimately that will not be the case for the universal church, but your church can die if, Absolutely. if every hill is a hill to die on. What's the process that someone can go through to recognize what parts of their type or their camp is worth laying down for the sake of unity? I Okay, so the thing that came to my head there was... It's like, the trouble is, I can think of people where it's like, that Christian who's voting for Trump or who's very strongly pro-Trump is a racist. So it's not just that they... It's not just that I disagree with them. And it's not just that we have divergent opinions. It's that they have a morally um, gross opinion or approach. That's so. If you just take somebody at good faith here, who's like maybe on the on the farther to the left, the four three to four camp or whatever, right? 
Um, that that's how they're going to see somebody on the one and two side, especially on the one side. Um, and my answer sort of to your question for that person is maybe they are <laughs> like, maybe they are racist and they have, and they, you know, somewhere down in their heart and you have to love them anyway, if they are your brother or sister in the church, that, that's my answer is like, yeah, maybe like, I'm and there's like our, moral weakness is all over the place. And if you're going to only love people who don't experience any moral weakness in church, good luck. Like you're just going to be in real trouble. So like, uh, again, aside from like overt, you know, right. 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 Calling someone the N word or something like that. Right. Like where it's like, you take it to a level of extremeness where it's like, okay, that's actually something where you need to be disciplined in church for. Right. But where you, where you experience somebody's voting behavior as racist, that's pretty different. I would say than something like that. And, and so, um, and again, you could play that back the other way as well. Like, uh, you know, if the person is, is telling you they're orthodox on, on these things, they affirm these essentials of the faith and they're going and loving these people, but they have a different political opinion than you, then you, you have to move towards them and you have to set aside, um, some of your beliefs. And like, my answer is like, go have dinner together, yeah. get to know them, like experience what it is to love and serve somebody like Jesus washed Peter's feet right before he denied him. Right. So like there's, he knew what was coming and he washed his feet anyway. And that's, that I think is like part of the deal here is that we have to recognize that the basis of our fellowship is not on our right opinions. The basis of our fellowship is on our, um, having been so wrong that we needed a savior and, and that like, uh, it is in the grace of Christ. So yeah, I I think you're just going to have a really, really hard time fitting in anywhere at some point. If you're always only going to go towards people with whom, you don't believe they have a morally inferior position. That is my favorite thing you said this whole podcast. I think you totally nailed it. In terms that there is um, areas of, there's pockets of sin in every one of us that are still unrealized, unrepented of, right? They're forgiven by the blood of Christ, but I haven't had the chance to actually lay it down or grow through it yet because I'm just blind to it, right? And this is probably in terms of gender, in terms of anger, in terms of I mean, there's probably pockets of this everywhere in our own hot hearts and lives. And yes, you might actually be accurate in what you're seeing in somebody else across the way. But chances are like the, the log and the splinter, right? Right. They probably see clearly into your own life mm-hmm. and see something in you that you are blind to. What mm-hmm. is the hope for us is ultimately that together we come together and it's through the context of the spirit working through relationships and through the body of Christ that then we can become aware, confess, be healed and grow through it. Yeah, and if and if the goal is actually not to get the opinion right or not to just legislate what you want or whatever, but actually to to make it so that um, let's say let's take the other side, so is actually to make it so that the person who seems to be loose with truth and scripture comes to embrace the full um, uh, sort of import of truth and scripture, right? Uh, or, or maybe the other way, like to make it so the, the racist person is no longer racist. Then the only context where that's going to happen is the context of grace and mm-hmm. relationship. Nobody's ever shamed into changing their position on mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. By pushing somebody away, distancing them and shaming them, all you're doing is pushing them farther into their camp. So if you really believe mm. that your brother or sister is racist, for example, or if you really believe that your brother or sister is being, um, light on truth in scripture and is denying fundamental truths of scripture in some way or, or even secondary truths, but really important ones still, 
right, of Scripture, then you, if you actually love them and care about them, you have to move towards them, not away from them. And if you actually love the issue that you care about, you have to move towards them, not away from them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think what this ultimately all gets at, and I think what, another part of the broader issue here is that a lot of this conversation is happening online on big, giant public matters. So it's like, what do you believe about this election? Um, when, when actually the arena of our righteousness and the arena of our love is hyper-local. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the goal is, I think, part of the deal here is that we have, we've got to put the arena of our efforts to be hyper-local. So, it's, so forget what I believe about this big, huge thing outside of me for a second. Sean, you got this on Sunday. You can actually do relatively little about quite a bit of that stuff. Well, because I got that from you. You, I, you brought that I, point to me. I, I loved it. I, 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 this is one of my go-to points. But yeah. like, yeah, your vote... For president gets you a very, 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 very <laughs> small way towards getting you the president that you want. And so, but you can do a lot more to actually love the person next to you who disagrees with you. And so I, I think part of this is like to get less national, less internet-y, and more local, more dinner table-y, you know? Good. Yeah, yeah. two things. Um, <laughs> I have to take notes Sorry, while I you... Sorry, I talked a lot. I have to take notes while you guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> This this podcast could easily be four hours. It's of about us it's just going. But, but this is it. This is such an issue, and everybody feels it. You probably don't have to convince anybody that we're divided over stuff like this. You right. probably we didn't have to spend a lot of time saying like, "Do you see that the church is fracturing?" Like everybody's like, "Yeah, we see it." You well, know? like David Platt, right? So David Platt is um, super conservative. Is I mean, and I love him. Yeah. Is currently being sued by his own church over accusations of uh, being an adherent of critical race theory. Yeah. There is no way in the world that that describes who David Platt is, but the world has become so crazy that that is a thing that can happen now in churches, yep. and it's not just him. Yes. It's, it's everywhere. I like the idea. Of, I had two points, but now they're gone because you guys said something else. Um, <laughs> There's too much to say. Go, Hunters, talk. Uh, well, I like, Andrew, what you said about localized ministry, and I think that as Christians, we actually have a space where that is seen, and that's... Uh, you know, the Lord's Supper. Dude, go. Like, well, didn't, don't need to go much farther than that. Like, in that moment, like, you are, the, the table spreads not only from brother to sister in your church, but brother to sister across every church. Yeah. Across every denomination, across every, you know, faith journey. You, yeah. you are actually equalizing everything. And so I think that communion is a really good physical and spiritual representation of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, communion itself as an act and as a, thing that we can participate in it's the most hyper local way that you can realize that like the one sitting across from you has just as much validity of being there as you do Mm -hmm. and another thing that you guys kept saying that you you guys you didn't explicitly say but like self-righteousness is a huge piece of this yeah like both both sides don't we need to get rid of our Mm self-righteousness like what paul says all of romans 14 like accept the weak like mm-hmm. don't don't quarrel over stuff like this. Like don't be so self righteous. Don't be so concerned with being right. And I think that that has to do with the internet, like Facebook, mm-hmm. right? Like you post a compelling article or you post a compelling comment, you get the likes, you get the response, you get the feedback. It feels good. We love being right. We yeah. love being the winners of the argument. And so, why wouldn't we want to bring those things into churches? Yeah. And Paul's point is stop passing judgment on one another, but you you be determined in your own mind not to put a stumbling right. block in front of your brother you make sure that you are not going to be a source of any division. Like you be gracious towards them, stop passing judgment and you look more deeply yourself. You address your own self-righteousness. I, I think your, I think that Lord's Supper point is really profound, Hunter. I think it's really, really good. I, I didn't think about that passage, but it is a perfect, 
I've actually been trying to answer this question, sort of like, what does the Lord say to us in this moment? Like, how, how does he say? And I think 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul applies the Lord's Supper to the Corinthian church, is like, it's exactly right. So mm-hmm. he says, um, uh, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse when you come together, he says. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there <laughs> must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And then he goes on to talk about the way they eat and drink and all those kinds of things and um, rehashes the story of uh, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, and it is interesting. I mean, it really is like the Lord's Supper as proclamation of the gospel for us as a community. That's really mm-hmm. what he focuses on there. But then verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Just to be clear about what Paul's saying there. <laughs> I mean, actually, I should keep going. He said, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. <laughs> that's a crazy passage. Right. Paul's saying, he, the way, when it says uh, eating or drinking in an unworthy manner, he's referencing the earlier conversation, which is he's referencing the stuff about how like there's factions while they're having the Lord's Supper and there's people getting drunk while others are going thirsty and hungry and people getting full while others are going hungry. So he's saying the way in which you are eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is not that you have like unchecked sin in your heart, like sort of like the youth group way of thinking about this, right? right? <laughs> right, it, right. It's that like he's saying you're eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way when you eat and drink it while maintaining factions. Mm-hmm. And, and then he says you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself and you're eating and drinking sickness and death on yourself. So, like, again, to go back to your point earlier, Sean, like, I think maybe the part of the deal here is to really examine ourselves individually. If you're listening to this, to examine yourself individually and think about your heart towards your brothers and sisters with whom you disagree. And then compare that to the, to the intensity of what, Paul, of what God is telling us through his word there, uh, which, is that, um, which is that you actually have a chance to, by... by eating and drinking the Lord's Supper while maintaining divisions and anger and dissensions towards people in the church, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Yeah. Uh, that is intense. Yeah. So um, Hunter and I were making eyes at each other a moment ago. So <laughs> Yeah, we were making it, eyes it, at it, each it other. It was adorable. <laughs> we were, <laughs> so over the course of, I believe, the weekend, uh, an Anglican priest out in Nashville was in a car accident was killed. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was... Um, I hadn't heard of him, but when you began to see the tributes to him, you realized, oh, this is somebody deeply respected across lots of different kind of denominations. And the quote that's come out from him that has kind of stuck through this whole time is him talking about the communion table. And he says this. He says, you need to imagine that the communion table is one that stretches on for miles to remind us that when we take communion, we mysteriously feast with all of those who are in Christ. In the Eucharist, we commune with Dorothy Day and St. Augustine, the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham and Mm -hmm. Flannery O'Connor and my own grandmother. And one day we'll all feast together in the flesh with Christ himself. So that's Thomas McKenzie. Boy, that is good. Isn't that good, right? Mm -hmm. And so it just, the communion table is not this little... That should be part of our communion liturgy. Yeah, right? That's really good. Yeah, I like that idea too. But it's that's not just a wafer. That is not just a cup. That is not just something that unites a local body together. It's not just something... That unites us to Christ in communion with him, but it unites us to all saints across all time, 
across all cultures and across different denominations. We are therefore united there through that table. And I think this is partly uh, why, uh, why Paul says, I think it's in First, First Corinthians 3, he says, he who, divides the, he who destroys the body, Christ will destroy himself, and the body is his, is his church. Is because Christ has united the church, right? He's united us together through his blood and through his sacrifice. And when we destroy that, we are destroying his body, and he hates it. Mm. He says, I will actually bring destruction on those who destroy the church. That's how deeply he cares about it. So when we ask like the questions of what is worth dividing over, that's a passage I think we have to yeah. it's actually just a hold huge on to. deal. It's, it's a, a huge, huge deal. deal to divide. And the consequences that. of it are huge for you personally. He will destroy you, he says. Like it is it's incredibly powerful and, yeah. and is worthy of pause about how quickly we walk away from a church or dismiss yeah. a believer or marginalize. Yeah. You know, it's 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 serious. So here's my last question then, because this has been going on for four hours. Um, what are some practical things or some practical ways that we at Coastline can cultivate a dinner table mentality, as we've been saying, rather than like a camp mentality or this, this is worth dividing over mentality? Yeah, well, what I'm excited about is that we're coming into the end of kind of what we might call like the first trimester of Coastline, <laughs> right? Like... Coastline's been meeting now for a little bit over 12 weeks. And we've 13, all been nauseous. And 14 yeah. weeks, yeah, right? We've been getting this thing going. But now, um, as we move into the fall, we're getting ready to really launch the next chapter, which will be how we do community, how we do um, what would typically be called small groups or life groups. How are we going to do that? Um, and I cannot emphasize enough. I mean, the big sales pitch for this is coming. But it is going to be so important for you to be in relationship and in community with people, other believers, other Coastliners, um, who you don't know, who might be different than you, for the sake of having that iron sharpening iron, for the sake of growing in your faith and hearing something that you haven't heard before and even something you may disagree with, for the sake of growing in your love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I cannot emphasize enough. I think it's just so important that we learn to seek out thoughts and opinions that are different than ours rather than just stay within the same bubble of relationships with people who who are like us. I think that there's no way to stunt your spiritual growth. I could think of more other than sin itself, right? There's no way to really stunt yourself in your faith than living in an echo chamber with people who everybody thinks like you do, and you guys just bounce off of each other. You have to, have to come into contact with other believers who, who think differently. Yeah. Um, I actually think this is a something to tag onto that. This is a little more individual, but um, I was thinking about this question in relation to um, into media because everybody will will kind of casually cite internet usage and media as major contributors to this problem, right? They'll talk about sort of um, bias in cable news channels. They'll talk about, oh, you know, social media just drives us into our things. And so I thought, like, we should think about that a little bit, actually. We should, if that's true, if that's one of the reasons that we're fracturing, and if fracturing is such a big deal, then we should really examine our habits around that. I, I did a little bit of Googling. I didn't even check the source here, but the... Uh, the, the quick thing I found was that the average person spends 145 minutes a day on social media in the world. Mm. Um, that, so that doesn't, that's before you talk about cable news or, or whatever, non, other kinds of news, you know? Um, so I, I didn't go check it. I, again, I probably don't need to try to convince you that we spend a lot of time on this sort of stuff. And I, I think what I would say is that one of the most practical ways we can love each other better is to be really thoughtful about how we, the discipleship of our minds and mm -hmm. of what we spend our time thinking about. Um, 
again, like without diving too deep here, part of the thing that happens in is on the internet is algorithmic feedback loops. Right. Like algorithms are driving you farther into your positions. They are not driving you in towards positions um, with which you disagree in good faith. They only drive you towards positions with which you disagree when somebody on your side is destroying them. Um, and, and so um, I think that's a big deal. I think it's a really, really big deal. And I think that for Christians in the modern age, we're going to have to get good at thinking about how our minds and hearts get discipled or, around that. I was thinking about um, if you're spending 145 minutes a day or a lot of time every day, that is discipling your mind. Mm-hmm. It is going to affect you. And so if, if you're if that 145 minutes... Yeah, I forgot to say we're recording this at Camp Pendleton. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. no, if airport. Yeah, if that 145 minutes, if if your life is marked by anger and fear, like anger about other positions and fear of what is happening in the world and in the country and all that stuff, I think you should ask what is causing that. And um, I will tell you that I. I believe that anger and fear are great emotions for content distributors to want to stir up in you because you will you will consume more of their content when you feel that way. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads is the old newspaper line. Yeah. So, um, so compare that to I was thinking about Philippians four. Um, compare that to this passage in terms of what is happening for you. Um, Philippians four four through eight. Rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, even that just that one verse. If you put that to heart as, a, as an, an antidote to what you were doing with your mind and your heart in your daily life. It would probably help. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is, a, is such a profound passage for the, the sort of mental anxiety of the age that we live in and for the divisions we feel. Um, and then verse eight, famously, or seven and eight, maybe anyway, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So if you're spending 125 minutes a day thinking about things, are they, do they fall into those categories? I, I really believe that if we were to spend our minds, think about our mental investment, about how, what are we doing with our minds, um, and examine that a little bit and really start to work hard as a community to develop different habits around that, it would make a massive impact on our ability to love one another well. Well, that's a great ending point. Dude, um, Thank you guys for sitting down and talking uh, and processing with me. I'm sure that... Wait, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. You've, been, you've played host this whole time, but that wasn't how I expected this conversation to go. What, it's Say my some job. things. No, it's not. Say some things. Say some things about, uh, about what you see with all this. How do, what do you think? You're, you're, how, do you, how do we love each other more as a community? How do we resist factionalism? How do we handle the fact that these are strongly held things? I, I just always go back to the idea of self-righteousness. I just think that that was a profound thing for me. I think we were talking like probably two or three weeks after Coastline started and we didn't have a lot going on in terms of like programming. So I was doing a lot of reading and podcast listening, you know, and um, I think I heard one person talking about how they disagree with someone so much. And then the co-host kind of uh, like called them out and was like, I'm feeling really convicted to tell you, like you sound very self-righteous right now. 
And like you're, and you know, it was a very liberal person. So he said, your self-righteousness is leading to you believing that you're better than everybody else, which is like the liberal Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that really struck me as someone who falls more in the three category of like, I do believe in the supremacy of the three. Uh, and I need to repent of that. And so when I'm mm-hmm. asking this question a couple of times, like what is good about ones? That's for me. <laughs> That's for me yeah. to say, like, I want to get better at this. Like I want to hear from other people that maybe don't sit in the same number that I do. Like what is redeeming or what, what is good about this that I can then launch into a conversation? Um, so, so I, I think that self-righteousness and just humility, intellectual humility, and also just spiritual humility to say, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm right and I don't want to be right. I want to just hear why you think you're right and that will help edify me and shape me and grow me. But I'm just the host and that's all that I have to say. Uh, and so oh, if you've made it this far in the podcast, tell Sean and he'll give you $5 to Starbucks. Man, how, how long is this podcast looking right now? Uh, we're, we're, uh, uh, way over 50 minutes, All right. which is good. Um, and so thanks for listening. And I don't know what you expected with bringing me on <laughs> <laughs> last time and you Sean. were, you were succinct. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> you, the problem is you gave me advanced warning to think about this. And so then I had came with too many thoughts. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Well, the next time we will just knock on your door and throw a mic in your face yeah, <laughs> and right we, maybe we'll get out of here in 30 minutes. Thanks for listening uh, to the Coastline Covenant podcast. And if anything you heard today uh, stirred you at all, I, I know I would love to hear from you, Sean and Andrew as well. Come talk to us. Don't email us. Don't give us another 125 minutes on our computers. Come find us at Four Minutes of Family or in between services and let's talk and then let's let that conversation go to a coffee or to a dinner where we can talk about everything that we disagree about and why that actually is good. Mm -hmm. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.